Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. So we're continuing our series called I Am, which is simply a series about Jesus in his own words or Jesus according to Jesus. Many people have an opinion about who Jesus is and who he claimed to be, but Jesus himself had something to say about who he was. And eight of those statements, eight of those I am statements are founded in the book of John. And we've been looking at a few of them already. In week number one, we looked at Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Second week was, I am the way, the truth and the life. Third week was, I am the door or the gate, some translations say. The week after that, we had, I am the good shepherd. And then last week, Ashley spoke about, I am the light of the world. And all the lights went down and he had his little lantern out here. And it was an incredible truth and an incredible message. And so today, I get to share, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And I want to look at what it is. What? Did they move? I can still see you. I can still see him. Is that freaking anybody out? That's, just, that's the best we can do. That's, that's fine. We're going to leave it at that. It's all right. Is that okay? Is that all right? Look at him. What about these three eyes? Are they okay? Are they all right? Fantastic. All right. There we go. Cool. You know what? This is what I've learned through reading the Bible, that Jesus, Jesus himself obviously didn't like fish. Because you notice he was always giving it away. He was giving fish away all the time. Just obviously hated fish. Any fish haters out there? Yeah, cool. You're in good company. Jesus hated fish. Anyway, please don't make that a theological statement of mine. Uh, anyway, let me get back to what I was trying to say. Uh, we're talking about I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, and we want to look at the fact of what it is to believe in the resurrection life and what implication it has for us today. And what we want to do is read from the book of John yet again, starting at chapter 11, reading from verse 20. But because there's a long read ahead of us, I need to give you a little bit of background. And so the background is this, that Mary and Martha called for Jesus, who was a long way away, about 110 miles away, because their brother Lazarus had taken ill. He was so violently ill, he was near death. And so they sent messengers to say, get Jesus to come and get Jesus to come quickly. That's what's going on here. And Jesus gets the message. We know that he loves Mary. We know that he loves Martha. And we know that he loves Lazarus. And yet Jesus, in his wisdom and in his love, he waits two more days. And we're going to look at that in a little bit later on in time. And he tells his disciples that we've got to go back to Judea. And Judea is the place where Jesus' life had just been threatened. So in John chapter 10, we see a group of people were picking up stones ready to stone Jesus. And Jesus escaped their grasp and he left only to tell the disciples, hey, we're going back to where we almost died. You can see why they're a little bit nervous. And as Jesus is coming into the city, Lazarus has died and he's been dead for four days. Everyone say four days. And when he's on his way into the city, this is where we pick up the story. John chapter 11, verse 20 says, So when Mary heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. 
But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on that last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called for her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and get up, and they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had been coming with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and he was greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And verse 35 is the shortest verse in the Bible. It consists of two words and they are, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay across it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said, Lord, by this time there will be an odour for the, he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Then he, when he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, Come out. The man who had died came out. Game changer right there. His hands and his feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I love this. This I am statement is the game changer for each and every one of us. Without this I am statement, everything else is just nice. This one changes everything. In order to understand the passage fully, we need to know what the original hearers thought about resurrection. They understood resurrection to be a physical bodily rising again after death. That's what they understood. But here's the problem. No one actually believed it could happen. They understood that's what resurrection is. It's a physical raising of the body from the dead. They understood that, but nobody believed it. 
Pagans did not believe this was possible at all. And Jews did not believe it was possible in their lifetime, only at the last day on that resurrection. N.T. Wright says this, the pagan world assumed it was possible. Uh, uh, The Jewish world believed that it would happen eventually, but knew perfectly well that that had not yet, as uh, this is because resurrection was believed to be death's ultimate reversal. See, when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, what He was saying is, I am the reversal of death. This is good news, church. It's little wonder that Paul says to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Oh, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? See, Jesus was not just claiming He could raise people from the dead. He was claiming that He was the answer to death, period, once and for all, and He changed the game. And so I want to look this morning about what this means for us today. This is all good, it's all exciting, but what does it mean for us today? And the first thing is this, that resurrection life is here and now. Everyone say here and now. You see, Martha's response was typical for the Jewish people. She said, oh Jesus, I know that He'll be raised in the future. I know there is a day that is coming. And Jesus doesn't get into a theological discussion with her. He just simply states, Martha, I am, present tense, the resurrection. You don't have to wait. I am right here, right now, the resurrection. You see, we wrongly think that resurrection is about going to heaven. But Jesus is trying to get us to see that the resurrection is about heaven coming down to us now, right here, right now in our daily lives. And that's what Peter was trying to get across in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. Dallas Willard says this, that Western Christianity is concerned mostly about two aspects of Christian faith. Firstly, the forgiveness of our sins, past. And secondly, if you believe and confess, you will gain entrance into heaven, future. He's saying that Western Christianity, which would include us, are more focused on the past and the future and we give very little thought to the present, the here and now. He says that the beginning of your life, and that's the beginning of your life and that's the end of your life, but we've missed the middle part. Salvation is most often used in Scripture in the present tense. That's why the Scripture says with good reason that today is the day of salvation. You don't have to wait any longer. If you need forgiveness, you can receive forgiveness today. If you need healing, you can receive healing today. You don't have to wait till you're good enough. You don't have to wait till you are dead enough. I'm telling you, there is on offer right here, right now, resurrection life to all that believe. Jesus is trying to get us to see that resurrection life is a present reality. And if we could live in this present reality, I'm telling you, it would change our life. And I truly believe it would change the lives of those around us. This world is hurting. This world is confused. 
This world is concerned. And they're looking for people that are living in a very real, ever-present hope. And that ever-real, present hope comes through resurrection life that's available right here, right now. Amen. Secondly, resurrection life is all-powerful. I love this. See, after hearing that Jesus died, Jesus, you've got to get this, He waits two more days. And some of us will be quick to conclude, call yourself a Christian. I thought you cared. I thought you loved these people. Why would you dare wait two more days? But as with everything Jesus did, it had a purpose. He was intentional about everything He did. See, what you need to understand is what the cultural belief of that day was. See, the cultural belief, not spiritual belief, not biblical belief, but the cultural belief of that day was that once a person died, the spirit would hover over the body for two days. And it was on the third day that the body would start to decay. And anything after the third day, the spirit would then leave the body and go to be in the afterlife. That was the thinking of the culture of that day. And so you can imagine if Jesus came too early, what they would have said. And so Jesus takes off all the possibilities, all the probabilities. He takes it all off the table. He says, I'm going to make sure that Lazarus is not only dead, but he's well and truly dead. I'm going to make sure that there is not only no hope, there's absolutely no hope. I'm going to make sure the situation is not only bad, but it's very, very, very bad. And then I can do my best work. God shows Himself to be at His greatest when we are at our weakest. The God of hope shows Himself to be the most hopeful when we are at the most hopeless. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And so after four days, there was no possible chance of resurrection. That was the culture of the day. And that's why Mary and Martha said, Jesus, you're too late. If you'd come two days after death, I mean, think about it. It's crazy. If you'd come two days, it would have been okay. But four days, it's too late. That, that was Martha's response. But Mary did something similar. She said this, and maybe you found yourself saying this, if only you came earlier, Lord. I can resonate with both of these women because I felt the same at different times. If only God, God, you're too late. Who's ever said that in a moment of weakness? Who's ever lost sleep with that thought? God, you're too late. It's four days. Two days, okay, but not four days. But in the waiting, Jesus reveals His power. You see, in His waiting, He was showing us that nothing is too hard. By coming on day four and not day two, He was saying that nothing is too damaged. By coming on day four and not day two, He was saying that nothing is too far gone. And so no matter where you are today and what you're facing and what you're going through, I want you to know you're not too damaged. It's not too far gone. God is waiting and in the waiting, He reveals His power. I, I, I remember... And being in a car accident, I wasn't driving, but I was in a car accident. And the car was so badly damaged, it was deemed written off. 
which means the value to repair the car was greater than the value of the car. And so the car was written off. It's not worth fixing. Can I say, because of what Jesus Christ did and what He said about being the resurrection and the life, He was saying effectively that you are not a write-off. You can never be written off because your value will always be more to God than any damage that you have created for yourself while here on planet Earth. You are the resurrection. I am the resurrection simply means you are not written off. No matter how damaged you may be. Isn't that good news? No matter how damaged you may be, no matter what place you may be in, no matter what you've been facing, no matter what you've been going through, no matter how damaged you are, no matter where you find yourself in life, no matter where you may be, you have hope. Isn't this good news? When Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, He was saying, you're not a write-off. You see, Mary and Martha had written off Lazarus. It's too late. The people that caught the woman in the act of adultery had written her off. So she's, she's gone too far. Gone too far this time. Oh boy, you've gone too far. They'd written her off. They bring her to Jesus. They want Jesus to deal with this. And Jesus says, she's not written off. You may have written her off, but I haven't written her off. And he looks at those who are holding stones, ready to stone this woman. And he says, he who is without sin, let them throw the first stone. The conviction of God hits them and they begin to leave one at a time, oldest to the youngest. The oldest ones are smart enough to realise I've made a lot of errors. The young ones are still thinking, oh, I'm good, I'm good. And as the older ones kept going one, one at a time, it's like, uh, maybe I'm not so good. Anyway, we'll just, <laughs> we'll just moonwalk out of here. And Jesus looks at this precious woman who we're going to meet in heaven one day. He says, where are your accusers? He says, they've gone, Lord. He says, well, neither do I condemn you. He says, now go sin no more. Everyone had written her off, but Jesus didn't. Maybe people have written you off. But I'm here to tell you, Jesus has not written you off. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've been up to, whether you've been naughty or nice, this Christmas, it's good news to know that Jesus does not write you off. Resurrection life is all-powerful. Thirdly, resurrection life is for those that believe. You see, this passage that we're reading from is littered with unbelief. If you read the whole chapter, you'll see that Jesus has six interactions with people. And there's no belief in any of them. Not one person is better than the other. They're all as bad as each other. They're all doubting. And dare I say, if we were there, we would have been in exactly the same place. Because that belief is in us today. Unbelief comes in many different shapes and sizes, but it always causes us to miss out on what God is doing. That's why the Word encourages us to only believe. Because our unbelief, no matter what form it comes in, it robs us of God's best for our lives. There's a number of examples of this unbelief in this passage here. One of them's fear. And I think the 
disciples could be forgiven for the fear that they had. They, they didn't want to go back because they knew that they'd just escaped death. And by going back there, they were putting their lives on the line. And at that moment, they weren't really interested in following Jesus. They weren't really interested in helping Lazarus. They were making it more about their comfort. And I'm telling you, that is a picture of New Testament Christianity today in the Western world, that we make our Christianity more about our comfort than helping anyone or anything. And our fear robs us of what God would have us do. Fear is an obstacle to belief when you des- your desire for comfort outweighs your compassion for others. Fear is thinking more about what you are afraid of than what God has asked you to do. Can you, can you see yourself in the Scriptures? That's why the Bible says that uh, the Bible itself is like a mirror. We're meant to see ourselves in the scripture. But not only do we see fear robbing and causing unbelief, but even good theology can rob you and cause you to have unbelief. Martha's theology got in the way of her obedience. Martha said this, if only you had been here, yet even now I know that he will rise in the resurrection. Good theology. In other words, she's saying to Jesus, I've studied eschatology. I know all about the end times. I've got good, solid theology. And Martha is hiding behind the right answers. It's one of the reasons that Jesus got so mad around the religious people because they had the right answers, but they did not believe in the answers they declared. And he's picking that up here in Martha's life. In other words, you can know the truth, but have no expectations or faith that Jesus will do that. Just think for a moment when someone says, can you pray for me, I'm sick. How many times you prayed a great theologically sound prayer with zero faith that anything will change? Father, we thank you that you're the God who is all-knowing. True. We thank you that you are ever-present. True. We thank you that you love and care for people. True. At this time, we've just dialed out. We're just, just words just coming. We just thank you, Lord. I thank you for my wife, for sending my wife, Lord. I thank you for that. That is true. Tick. And then we even say these words. We pray that you would heal this woman because that would be correct to say. Tick. And if you were to ask, did you have any faith that that person would be healed? We'd have to honestly say, for the most times, I had no faith. I had good theology but I had no faith. Jesus is not coming back for good theology. He's coming back for those that believe. He's coming back for those that believe. John is showing us, the author of this book is showing us not only the illness of Lazarus, but the illness of those without faith. If you don't have faith, if you don't believe in the words of God, you are as sick as Lazarus himself. Our acts of righteousness are as dead as the body of Lazarus. He was highlighting the deeper sickness, and that is the sickness of a lack of faith in Christ. Resurrection life is for those that believe. And number four, resurrection life moves us to action. Could we have the band come up? That'd be great. Resurrection life moves us to action. In verse 33, as we've already read, it says this, that Jesus was deeply moved 
and he was greatly troubled. Now the word deeply moved is the same word as the snorting of a horse before battle. It's not the kind of picture we have of Jesus, meek and mild. But when it says that Jesus was deeply moved, it's the same word as the snorting of a horse before battle. A better translation would be that he was outraged. He was mad as heck. He was ticked. This is our loving Jesus. What it's saying is that Jesus was looking at the people there with deep sorrow and deep anger. Is that possible, you say? I think it is. It's the kind of deep sorrow and deep compassion and deep anger that we experience when our child is playing in the middle of the road and a car's boring down on them and you've got to go in the front of the car, grab the child and save them. Deeply moved. Deeply grateful that your child is safe, but you're mad as heck. And maybe you don't have to be a parent to fully understand what I'm saying. When you're so glad they're okay, you're so glad they weren't killed because now you can kill them. (laughs) If you haven't felt that, you haven't been a parent. And Jesus was feeling just like that right here. He was compassionately outraged at what? At death. How dare death rob people? How dare death take people before their time? He was outraged at the sin. You know, if you get outraged at sin today, you're called a cult or you're just being super religious. But we should be deeply moved when we see people hurting themselves because they, won't, they refuse to come in line with God's will. Jesus was deeply moved and troubled by the sin. He was deeply moved by the brokenness of people. When's the last time you became angry and annoyed and compassionately outraged when you saw brokenness in the world? Or do we just walk past it and it doesn't even touch us anymore? Come on, church. This world is getting crazier and crazier by the minute. And our job is not to hide away or to give up. Our time is right here, right now. As it gets darker out there and it gets crazier out there with all the American election and what's going to happen with Australia in context of America, I'm telling you, this is our finest hour. And we need to be compassionately outraged more than we ever have before. Jesus has got us snorting in his nostrils. He's, he's, he's ready for battle. I mean, he's just, he's ready to do something big. He's ready to make a change. His next move is an absolute game changer. He's mad at the brokenness. He's annoyed at the lack of faith. There's no faith in all the people that he's been spending time with. There's no faith. And he's compassionately outraged by that. And he's compassionately outraged by the religious games that people were playing. You see, back in the day, they had what they called professional mourners. And people would come and they would weep as professional mourners just to make up the numbers. And Jesus hates religion with a passion. 
And, and it's something that deeply moves me to this day. The religion when it's in me, the religion when it's in us and our church, it deeply moves me. But let it move us to the place where we recognise it so that we can move away from it. What gets you compassionately outraged? See, compassion with outrage is just passivity. And there's a lot of that in the church. Compassion without outrage just equals passive. And there's a lot of that. But outrage without compassion just breeds hate, anger, division, and blame. It's not one or the other. It's a both and. It's the kind of anger that this young boy David had on the battlefield. When this nine foot plus giant dared defy the army of the living God. And David was deeply moved. He was compassionately outraged. He looked at the people that were in fear. He had compassion for them. But he was outraged at this audacity of this nine foot giant, dared defy the army of the living God. Are you kidding me? And in his heart of hearts, he said, I'm going to knock his block off. And so he picks up some stones. And someone says, oh, if, if you're going to go, you better see King, the king first. Oh, I'll go see the king. What do you want? Uh, puts all this armour on. He tries to walk around with this armour. And, and he says, I can't do that. It's weird. I just, you know. So he takes the arm off and he goes and does what he does. And he goes and knocks the giant's block off. And cuts his head off. It's just such a cool story. Don't tell me the Bible's boring. But what moved him? Let me tell you this. I'll tell you what, moved, I'll tell you what didn't move everyone else. Fear. Intimidation. Not my problem. I can't do anything. That's what doesn't move. You've got to ask yourself this. Not what moves you, but what's not moving you. What's not moving us? We have an incredible opportunity. We all have family and friends who are not walking with God. Do not know about this resurrection life that's available to them. And we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to make a difference. But sometimes we only move when we get mad enough. This notion that Jesus was meek and mild and just loved everyone. Yeah, love hates evil. Love doesn't tolerate certain things. I love my kids, but if they're rude to my wife, God help them. If, if my kids are rude to my wife, I'm showing no respect to my wife or no love to my wife, just letting it happen. How oh, about I love my kids? I'm going to tell them off. Are you kidding me? Love hates evil. And Jesus modeled this better than anyone. And all of us fall short of this incredible standard. Jesus is our example. He is our model. He's our model as to how we interact with the brokenness that we see in our world. And it's from this compassionate outrage that it says he said in a loud voice, so cool. He's so mad. Lazarus, come out! 
I imagine those would have jumped. They would have jumped when Jesus spoke, and then they would have jumped when the dead guy came out. It would have been a double scare. As we conclude, we don't always see this type of resurrection life in our circumstance. Unfortunately, we've had to bury some people that are really close to us over the 23 years of ministry and more. But I want you to know it's not because God is not compassionate enough. God is always doing something more. If things don't go according to the way we thought they should or that they would, know this, that he wants, He's doing something more. He wants to take the dead places out of our own lives and not just our circumstances. See, there's a lot of dead things in us. And so sometimes it's not the resurrection of a dead person, it's the resurrection of things that have died in us. The lukewarmness that's crept in. God wants to bring a death to that. God's specialty is bringing life to dead places. See, the story of Lazarus is really a sign pointing to another well-known tomb. The author of John, which is John himself, skillfully crafted this message, and it was all pointing to another tomb. It wasn't pointing to the tomb of Lazarus. It was pointing to another tomb. That in just six days' time, from the rising up of Lazarus, there'd be another tomb that would be emptied. And it would be the tomb of Jesus Christ himself. And all of this happened to point to the empty tomb of Jesus. Thus concluding that He is who He said He is. That He's the resurrection and the life. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au. 